Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old-school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian Solomon, and I'd like to welcome you to the second episode now, the second episode of Shut Up and Wrestle. Uh, We got things off the ground last week with our first episode, and my guest, Stu Sachs, uh, I was very thrilled to get that out there, and I've gotten a lot of um, positive feedback. Uh, people like the interview with Stu, and I like the interview with Stu, so I'm glad that people are enjoying it so far. And uh, we are going to get down to our second episode today, where my guest is uh, none other than the Blue Meanie, Brian Heffron, someone that I've known now for over 20 years, um, back to our mutual WWE days, and um, just uh, for fans of ECW, of course, you know him very well, one of the absolute icons of ECW. Uh, But beyond that, also, uh, Brian grew up as a wrestling fan, as a lot of us did, and was a fan of particularly the WWF, but also the NWA and Crockett and things like that. And so uh, he's got a lot of interesting stuff to talk about, great memories. Um, It was a good conversation that I will be sharing with you in just a few minutes. Uh, Before I get to that, I just want to get to a couple of quick things. I wanted to talk about my book, um, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik my biography of The Sheik, which is coming out on April 12th. So I just wanted to give a little update. We have approved the final official cover for the book. So we are closer than ever to going to press and getting physical copies out there. Um, There's also going to be a digital PDF copy, a Kindle edition of the book that you'll be able to buy. Um, and, and I think I may have talked a little bit about this last time, but there will be an audiobook version and I officially have signed the contract to record the audiobook myself, which I'm glad about. I'm really uh, grateful that they gave me the opportunity to do that um, rather than having somebody else do it. So I'm excited. We're going to be doing it soon. Uh, anyway, so you can pre-order the book on Amazon or anywhere else where you where you get books, but it's coming out April 12th, and um, copies will probably be trickling out even a little before then, so get the pre-orders in. Also, I wanted to mention a couple of the magazines that I'm in this month. Uh, Pro Wrestling Illustrated has its April issue out, the year-end awards issue, which if you watch AEW Dynamite, you know all about that because uh, they've been talking about it and they even had a segment on there with Britt Baker, uh, which led a lot of people to believe that uh, Tony Khan had bought Pro Wrestling Illustrated and we were somehow in his pocket. Um, I can assure you, based on uh, what they pay me, that that is certainly not true. Um, So any rumors to the effect that uh, 
Tony Khan or that PWI is in the pocket of Tony Khan are patently false. Um, but I wanted to point out the fact that in that issue, I've got uh, a piece that I'm very proud of because Pro Wrestling Illustrated gave its Stanley Weston Award, which is the Lifetime Achievement Award, uh, to two individuals this year. One of them was Ron Simmons and the other one was Terry Funk. And I had a chance to write the tribute piece to to Terry Funk. And uh, I can honestly say that I cannot think of a single living person who is more deserving of a Lifetime Achievement Award in wrestling than Terry Funk. So uh, you can find that tribute and Stanley Weston Award, uh, as well as all the other year-end awards in the April issue of PWI on sale now. Also, Inside the Ropes, their current issue, which is the February issue, issue number 17 with Sting on the cover, um, they have their year-end awards in there as well, and I was um, able enough and fortunate enough, I should say, to be able to vote in those awards as a contributor to that magazine. So you can pick that up as well. Uh, that's InsideTheRopesMagazine.com. And for Pro Wrestling Illustrated, that would be GetPWI.com to get that. Um, so that's what I've been up to. And, uh, so what I'd like to do right now is, uh, take you to that interview. Uh, it was a lot of fun talking to Brian Heffron, the blue meanie about, um, his memories as a fan and his experiences as an ECW original and a lot of other great stuff. So I hope you enjoy, I hope you enjoy this chat as much as you did last week's with Stu. So without further ado, let's take you to that right now. Okay, so right now, I am super excited to welcome to the podcast somebody that I have known for quite a long time. Uh, I wish I could say going back to the ECW days, but going back to the WWE days. Yes. And he is um, not just, and I'm going to say this, you don't have to say it, not just an ECW original, but an ECW icon. One of those people that when you ask people who was in ECW, he's going to be one of the first names that come up. Um, and it is none other than the Blue Meanie, Brian Heffron. Hey, Welcome. what's up, friend? How you doing? Thank uh, you. A little Brian to Brian action here. Uh <laughs> I know. There's a, there's a lot of Brian's floating around in the business. So um, I know I, I've asked you this before, but you're cool with me calling you Brian, right? Brian or Meanie, don't matter. Uh, I, always, I always joke when people use my legal name, I, I assume I'm in trouble. But uh I think I'm in gun company here. I don't think I'm in trouble here. So no, yeah, no trouble. It's fine. That's fine. All right. Then I will call you Brian then. Yeah. Because you know, I mean, <laughs> I, I've been interviewing wrestlers for a really, really long time. And sometimes I just feel like, Hey, you know, I think I've, I feel more comfortable using your, your real name. It's hard to say meanie with a straight face. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I was telling you before we started that, um, you know, of course, everybody knows you that uh, for fans, their first memory of you is from ECW. But because and, and I do want to talk about that, we will get to that. But because um, this is a podcast where I really like to get into what people loved as fans of wrestling, um, I wanted to mention the fact, as a lot of people probably know, that you're not just, you know, um, a wrestler but you were a lifelong fan you were a fan as a kid there's photographic evidence right <laughs> yeah all over the internets everybody's seen the acid wash denim jackets and things like that right <laughs> i still have it which i still have nice you, you were wearing blue even back then in a way oh dude is 
I don't know what it is. It, my, I was always fascinated with blue, but uh, maybe because I have blue eyes, <laughs> or I don't know. But my grandma used to. Love, my grandma used to, you know, fawn over her blonde-haired grandson with the bright blue eyes. So, so how did you- I was always more partial to blue. <laughs> did she get to see you with blue hair, your grandmother? Uh, yes. Yes. And it was kind of heartbreaking for her because, uh, you know, I was like the last of the grandchildren, you know, she had like 13, 14 grandchildren. And I was like, uh, the baby and, uh, I had the, the bright blonde hair and the, uh, the blue eyes and the, the fat cheeks and, you know, uh, you know, she, she fought over, she got me heat with the other cousins, you know, you know, being the, uh, the youngest one. So I got the, uh, I got the praise they used to get. Oh, well, uh, you know, <laughs> that's how it goes. And the funny thing is nowadays, there's a lot more people walking around with blue hair, it feels like, than there was back then, right? Yeah, I don't stand out as much. Uh, no, you don't. But that, that's that's a good thing, you know. Uh, when you get into the business, you're trying to, how do you stand out? You know, how, I tell people nowadays, you know, uh, you know, when they're getting the business, find what everybody else is doing and just go the opposite way, you know? Well, you definitely did that. I mean, I, I want to say, I know I said we weren't going to kick off with ECW, but I just had one thing I wanted to say because it was no, I, because it's something personal, actually. And then I, you'll understand why when I say this. So correct me if I'm wrong here, but your first sort of official appearance in ECW wasn't a match. But the first time you were on was November to remember 95. Am I right? Yes. Okay. Uh, uh, well, officially. Uh, I had appeared, I debuted the month before in October. Okay. That's the, uh, the, sh- the fire incident with, uh, Cactus Jack and Terry Funk and right, uh, yes. all that footage disappeared. So I had to re-debut and, uh, in, in that month's time is when Raven came up with the blue meanie character for me. So, well, the reason I mentioned it is I was at November to remember 95. I was, I was in college. And I dragged my girlfriend at the time, my future ex-wife. This might have been part of the reason why she's an ex, but I, she was a good sport. I will say that. And I heard so much about ECW. I was watching it on MSG Network, two in the morning, whatever it was on. And I went down there and um, you were in the audience. They had you come out and I will never forget because I mean, people are so used to now the look of the blue meanie and I'm not and it wasn't fully in place yet, but people right. are used to it. They see you come out with the belly shirt and the short, that short shorts and everything and the thing when people first saw you, I mean, people didn't know what to make of it. I remember I'm sitting there with my girlfriend. I'm going like because you came out of the crowd, right? I think like they were trying to make it seem like you were a fan. I think was that it? Yeah, I was. I was Stevie Richards' biggest fan. That's it, right? And I'm going, is this a shoot? Like, is this guy really some crazy fan? What What's going on here? And I I never forgot it because I thought it was just going to be some fluky one time thing, like a weird thing that they were doing, and it turned into this you know legendary career. Amazing. And, and the, the the cool thing about that. Uh debut was to me it was kind of like a, a coronation from me going from being a fan to being a wrestler i mean i i'd been wrestling for a year and a half up until that point i trained with al snow out in ohio uh wrestled out there for about a year and then he, he eventually said you know it's time to you know 
you can leave the nest now and go out on your own and try to hustle and get your own bookings. And, you know, uh, Stevie and uh, Raven noticed me on a couple indie shows and, you know, they thought I'd be perfect for, you know, Steve, Stevie was Raven's lackey and they wanted a, a lackey to a lackey, kind of like those Russian dolls to fit into, you know? Right. But, um, yeah. And then, you know, I, you know, before ECW, I was, again, I was a huge fan. I used to go to those ECW shows as a fan, 93, 94. And then eventually I moved to Ohio to train, but you watch some of those early ECW shows. Sometimes I'm in the bleachers, uh, ultra clash 93. I'm, I'm right in the front row. <laughs> uh, and if you look at uh bill DeMott's autobiography, there's a photo of him doing a moonsault uh, from ECW and I'm in the bottom right-hand corner in the crowd as a fan on the cover of Bill DeMott's book. That's, that's incredible. It's like some of those pictures that you post sometimes is like, it's like you're, you're, you're like the Zelig of wrestling. Like you're just, you know, <laughs> you're like, is that the blue meanie with the heart foundation? How did this happen? You know? And, and I do want to get to that because, um, uh, but I just want to say, I, I'm, I'm sure if I had done my homework, I would have already known this, but with the, with the gimmick coming from Raven, yeah. I always, for whatever reason, assumed that it was Paul. I don't know why it just felt like something that he would come up with, you know, cause he probably remembered it from when he was a kid or whatever. I, I, I didn't realize that it came from Raven, but it kind of makes sense now that you, now that you mentioned it, that he would yeah. think of that. Raven should get a lot of credit for a lot of the characters and people that, you know, were brought in ECW, came up, came up with me. He uh, gave Stevie his, you know, persona. Uh, he found uh, Beulah. He found Kimona. He gave the Dudleys their gimmick. Wow. You know, just he, uh, he has his fingerprints all over on a lot of different characters within the company. So I wanted to talk about, I, mean, I was mentioning how, you know, your, your pictures that you like to post. So if, for people that don't know, I'm referencing things and assuming people know what I'm talking about. But <laughs> if you, you know, if you follow the Blue Meanie on social media, then you'll see every now and then he'll post pictures from when he was a kid and when he was a fan and he would go to fan conventions. And that's what I think is so cool, because so often, especially back then, I think more now you have more people in the locker room who are who grew up as fans wasn't as common back then. Right. I mean, it felt like a lot of the guys were, they came into the business. They didn't really even know a lot about wrestling. They might've been athletes from other sports. They might've been like bouncers from bars. They really didn't, they weren't fans as much as there are now. So I think it's kind of cool that you grew up following this thing and you got to, you know, participate in it. Yeah. I mean, um, it's just, it's something that, you know, I, there, there was one morning in 1982, uh, I was watching a Phillies game and I went over to my neighbor's window. I said, Hey, Sean, you want to come over and watch the Phillies game with me? He goes, no, I'm watching wrestling. And I said, what the hell's wrestling? You know, I'm like eight years old, seven, eight years old. And I went in and I don't remember the whole show, but the one match I remember is Tony Gurria and Rick Martel uh, losing the WWF tag belts to mr fuji and mr saido and from that point that was the that was the bug that bit me and i was i start watching every week you know from that point on and uh it just got to a point where you know uh i annoyed the rest of my family who wanted to watch certain shows and now brian's gotta watch his wrestling 
<laughs> but uh yeah i watched wrestling um it became a thing i watched with my grandparents uh my grandmom used to tell me about the legends of hat pin mary the old lady that used to go to the wrestling shows and pull out the hat pin out of her hat, hat and stab the heels in the ass with her hat pins and and one story which uh is great my grandfather i was watching uh wwf uh and they were doing rogers corner buddy rogers had the interview segment you know people forget this because of you know piper's pick gets all a lot of the love deserve right. so but um there's rogers corners and he's interviewing somebody my grandfather walks in and goes ah oh, i know him no, you don't. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, kids don't believe anything. You know, ah, you don't know him. Yeah, I, I know because you know, Buddy Rogers before he was a wrestler was he was a cop in Camden, New Jersey. Mm. He would moonlight as a bouncer at a door at a, a, at a bar that my my grandfather used to go to in Camden, New Jersey. So, long story short, <clears throat> my grandfather takes me to the AWA tapings and at the Tropicana in Atlantic City. Buddy Rogers is doing play-by-play so he's signing autographs i go over i go excuse me excuse do you know jim reardon and he pauses he goes yeah i reckon i go he's right over there and they start talking to each other as it's like the the most amazing thing ever it's it's so cool you know uh you know know, my grandpa was my hero so he he knew buddy rogers was amazing from back in the day was was amazing but yeah wrestling was the bug that bit me man it's i love sports too don't get me wrong but there's just something about it that drew me in you know the over the top stuff and yeah and since you were you know in pennsylvania did you ever get to go because they were still doing those hamburg and allentown tapings at that time right did you ever go go to those unfortunately no um you know uh i was born in philly and then when i was two we moved to a small town called gloucester city new jersey where I lived till I was 10. And then when I was 10, we moved to Atlantic city and, uh, I didn't go to my first wrestling event live until maybe 1983. Uh, it was at the Atlantic city convention center. Uh, the main event was, uh, Andre the giant, uh, Jay and Jewel Strongbow against, uh, blackjack Mulligan, Uji and Saito, and, uh, might've been two out of three or best of five fall match which is kind of weird but uh yeah andre main event at my first show ever and it was just amazing and you piece of useless knowledge later on that same hall that i saw my first wrestling show in was would be the room i graduated high school in and where was the first show that you saw lank city uh convention hall uh they didn't they didn't do it in the main hall that they did wrestlemania four and five in but there's like a another uh ballroom like right, right, right off in the same building but right off kind of like how uh hammerstein and uh where they used to do raw or kind of in the same building yeah in manhattan know, uh, center yeah yes yes that uh but this was like a small little ballroom in the langsey convention center which I, w- I wound up seeing a lot of shows in, you know as a kid yeah you know the funny thing and for people that grew up you know, if you grew up in the Northeast, like yeah. we did, then WWF was always your territory. You know, you didn't grow up with a brand of wrestling that got wiped off the map. It was it was the same company that you always knew, which is, a, a you know, kind of a weird experience. But 
they would do these little tiny shows. It's incredible to think about now. Like you're talking about that one and you graduated from high school in that same room. Yeah. I, I remember when I was in elementary school in the 80s, I went to Regina Podges School in Brooklyn. And if you are like an obsessive nerd about WWF results, you might know that name because they would come there like, I don't know, once a year, twice a year for, I guess, like, it's not even a B show. Would you call it like a C show? I don't know. It, it was an elementary school gym. And I remember, I mean, and I'm not talking about, I mean, they brought Sergeant Slaughter versus the Iron Sheik there in the summer of 84 when it was the hottest feud in the country. And they're doing it in front of 300 people in an elementary school gym. And it just blew our minds that these stars that we saw on TV, they were coming to our gym where we would have gym class in like third grade. And I remember like when, when that show was coming, we wrote letters because we were in the locker room and every kid wrote like a letter to Sergeant Slaughter and put it in their locker in case he got their locker he would read their letter and we have no idea which letter he wound up reading or if he read any of them, yeah. but they kept doing that. Even when they went national, they were coming there until about not the end of the eighties, really 89, 90. They were still doing those little shows impossible to imagine now, you know, but, but back then it was real. Yeah. It, uh, like I said, that this little ballroom, you saw, saw these shows and sometimes we got to see town shows, you know, uh, you know, Iron Mike Sharp against Pedro Morales in the main event or something like that. But, you know, it was fun to, to me. It didn't matter. Like, you know, nowadays, you know, wrestlers are, I mean, wrestling fans are, you know, laser focused on the business aspect mm -hmm. side of it with the ratings and this and that and the other thing. And I didn't start worrying, hearing of any, you know, the, you know, the first time somebody goes, I went to a show and somebody was like, ah, what was the attendance? I don't know. I don't care. I was yeah. there to watch the wrestling. I wasn't counting heads, you know. Um, what are you a hall monitor? Just uh... <laughs> well, that's another big shift because I feel like you know. Of course, back then the wrestlers would have said that. The wrestlers would have asked oh, yeah. that question. I feel like the the old school. They were getting paid, we right? Weren't... Right. <laughs> the, the big difference I always found from interviewing wrestlers of an earlier generation to wrestlers of a younger generation is. The younger guys will talk about the titles they won, the matches they won. You know, they'll really like remember the dates and the things. And the older guys, they're just like, I, you, they say to me, like, you probably know more about that than I do, you know, but what they do remember are the gates and the houses and the money they drew. And th those are the things that they brag about. But the weird thing is now you have, like you said, fans doing that, whereas fans never even were aware of that kind of thing. I don't get it. I don't get the appeal. I don't know if it's like a status thing where, Hey, I watched the most watched thing. I'm in, I'm in, in the cool class or I don't know. I don't get it. I was more yeah. focused on is, you know, Randy Savage going to keep his belt at WrestleMania five. That's it. It's <laughs> one know? thing. It's one thing. If you have people that follow the industry or insiders, like, like people, like I have an interest in this, that side of the industry because, you know, I've, I've worked in it in, in my own small way. And, or you have people like Dave Meltzer. I mean, that's the, it's a trade publication. They're insiders. They follow it. They talk to people, but the average fan watching the show, I, there seems to be no reason why they would care. The only thing I guess is because, because of the internet now, you know, they're exposed to all that stuff. So they feel like 
that's part of what being a fan means that you follow the business side of the business, but there's no need for that, you know, for an average fan. I, I guess it's the pro wrestling equivalent of playing fantasy football where you got to keep your stats and stuff like that to win the, the, your fantasy football league at the end of the year. But with pro wrestling fans, there's really no payoff at the end of the year. If you're keeping attendance and ratings and demo, you know, I don't get the obsession with demos. Yeah, that's great. That's great for, you know, the promotion, you know, but you know, if you're winning your demo, that should be dessert. That should be, that shouldn't be your main course. You know, the most eyes on the product should be the, the, I'm speaking to the, I'm preaching to the choir here, but like, like if a million people watch my show and 750,000 watch the other show, the guy who got a million people won. I don't care. 18 to 49 because that's a million people who are potentially buying t-shirts tickets and all that stuff and the yeah. funny thing about oh go on sorry no 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 i, I was just going good <laughs> I well no the, the funny thing about the 18 to 49 that we always hear when i worked for wwe and my i was there 2000 2007 so at that time of course like we were ratings obsessed but, but i i worked yeah. there at that time they always just talked about 18 to 34 which is weird. Really? Like nobody mentioned it was like once you turned 35, you were dead. 18 to 34 <laughs> was all they cared about. I even remember because Shane McMahon was the head of our department. And at the time that I worked for him, he was just hitting that age. Like he hit 35 while I was working for him. And in meetings and stuff, he would always go, well, you know, I'm not I'm not the demo anymore. So I'm looking to you guys to give me answers. I'm, I'm too old. So it's weird now. It's like they extended it. I don't know if it's because the fans that were watching back then, a lot of them are still watching, but I, we never heard of that 18 to 49 thing back then. It just wasn't uh, 18 to 34 was everything. I was, I, I was in WWE during the hottest period, the Monday yeah. night wars. I never heard anything about demos. Yeah. You know? And, uh, you know, they try to recreate it now with the Wednesday night wars, but you know, it's not really a war when you're fighting over decimal points instead of whole numbers. It's just weird. I think yeah. that's why they stress the demos now, because if you look at the numbers, it's kind of sad, but it's not just wrestling. It's the whole TV industry. You know, like I'll look at this thing and I'll go, and here we are. We're going to get off this topic in a minute. We're talking, we said we weren't going to talk about demos. We're talking about demos, but it's like, you look I'm, at I'm the biggest hypocrite. So no, but you'll go, oh my God. I remember when Raw would do like a 5.0, you know? Yeah. And now everybody's looking and they're going like, oh my God, there were almost a million people watching that show. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, like if you could fit all the people watching the show in the country in like a really large stadium, it's probably not a good thing. You know, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, like you said, it's like they're fighting over scraps in a way. But, but again, I, I don't want to point out, I'm not, I'm not saying it's just a wrestling thing. It's all of TV because of streaming, yeah. because of, you know, um, other things that people do and computers. VRs. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's not the same anymore. It's not the same, but all right. So I want to get back to the, to that, what we were at before, because one thing I wanted to get to is, you know, um, you were talking about watching WWF as a kid. Um, I don't want to, I'm trying to get a picture of the time frame here. When did, did you wind up moving back to Philly at any point or back to Pennsylvania? And when was that? I moved back to Philly, uh, right in time to start wrestling for ECW. 
Uh, I see. Okay. Yeah, it was. Uh, well, my grandparents moved to uh, Atlantic City, and my mom was a single parent, and she was kind of struggling. You know, it was her and my sister and me. And my grandparents were like, "Well, we'll take care of Brian. We'll bring him down to the shore with us." And, uh, and then eventually, my mom joined us down there. And then when my, once my grandfather passed, my grandma was like, "You know what? That was our dream." You know, it's, I'll move back to Philly. So we all moved back to Philly, you know, to be closer to family because our, all our family was in Philly. But I was just, I literally, I couldn't have timed the move back any more perfect because right then and there, I, I started going to ECW. So now a little bit before that, when you were yeah. kind of in your fan stage then, were you, uh, and I, I brought up Philadelphia because Philly wound up, I mean, we all know Philly, is a was always a huge WWF town. I mean, like going back to the 60s, like I think of, you know, it's Madison Square Garden, Boston Garden, Philadelphia Spectrum. Like those are the three, especially from the 70s and into the 80s. Like those were the cornerstones. But what a lot of people don't always remember, or maybe they do, is that when Jim Crockett promotions was starting to spread out and strike out in other areas and go national, not really national, but try to expand, yeah. Philadelphia became one of their hottest towns outside of their, you know, region. It was like they were, you know, they knew they couldn't get into the garden, right? Uh, and they were trying to do something in WWF territory, and they wound up getting really hot in Philly. Do you remember that? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, they had, you know, the, you know, Great American Bash in 86 in Vet Stadium in uh, Philly where the Eagles play. And I, I went to that, which was pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, that Philly was such a hot market for Crockett and WWE, you know, the precursor to the Monday night war, they would run head to head together against each other in Philly just to see how their attendance would, uh, you know, uh, be affected, you know, uh, you know, they would look at what they drew the month before compared to going to head to head with, you know, WWE, even though both buildings have different capacities, right? But yeah, they did, they did, they, they, they they took Sir Philly as a, as a serious market. And the, so the, that veteran stadium show, if I'm thinking of the same show, that show didn't do too well though. Right. I think that the crowd was kind of not that, not that great for that. Am I, or am I thinking of a different show? Uh, I don't know. Again, I, 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 I was think just, they, yeah, no, I was just, uh, I don't really remember the crowd. I remember it being a lively crowd. And one of the matches from that show is actually on um, Daily Motion. Uh, Ric Flair defending the, the NWA title against Road Warrior Hawk from Veteran Stadium. Yeah, that's the one I'm thinking of because because I know because they were doing really well in Philly. But I think with that show, I I think kind of like the the thinking on that show is they kind of overshot themselves just a little bit. Like they may not have been ready to pack a football stadium like that in that area, but. Um, where would they now did were they running the spectrum or did they have a different they had a different location they'd run right they wrestled at the philadelphia civic center that's the one right that's the one and i don't know what it is but the impression i get and this is my own theory and you'll probably know better than me but because philly fans are so nuts yeah and they're so bloodthirsty it's like <laughs> that was that appealed to them because the Crockett stuff was more violent. It was less kitty. It was more edgy. Even for that time, it was almost like the same stuff that made them love ECW was why they loved 
the Crockett NWA stuff because they were like, wow, we haven't seen this kind of stuff since probably the 70s. And they were just really digging it. Well, yeah. I mean, you would see stuff on Crockett's TV that, you know, probably happened in South Philly where, you know, <laughs> Dusty's getting jumped in the parking lot, you know, right. <laughs> stuff like that. But like the, the, the Philly fans, I mean, that ECW crowd is the same, you know, mindset set and same fan base that we're rooting on the, the Broad Street bullies. You know, the Flyers against the Russians, you know, tell it to the czar, you know, with the signs and stuff like that. And, you know, that was, it. you know, Philly's a blue collared, busted knuckle town, hardworking people. And, uh, you know, they take their money and time as an investment and they don't want it wasted. So, you know, Crockett definitely seemed like the, the harder edged, uh, harder, you know, harder working, uh, yeah, yeah. promotion. I mean, I WWE will always be king of Philly, but Crockett, you know, you know, made WWE, uh, earn their, earn their keep here in Philly. But those same fans were, the, you know, the, you know, the ones that were booing Santa Claus and throwing sand, snowballs and all this stuff. It was just an evolutionary cycle to, you know, what became ECW. Because if you watch a lot of those those WCW pay per views, you see the hat guy, you see, you know, all those fans and stuff like that. And I was just watching, uh, you know, Halloween Havoc, you know, was you know recently. And uh, a lot of people are pointing out that I was, you can see me front row at Halloween Havoc 94, 90, 93, you know, just, uh, you know, being a, a goof in the crowd, you know, being Chris Farley in the crowd, you know. I'm trying to think, I'm using my savant memory here of Halloween Havoc. I know Halloween Havoc 92 was Ron Simmons, oh man. Versus the Barbarian, maybe I'm thinking. Then that was Philly. That it was '92. Then I'm sorry. Right, '92. Yeah, that was. If I, I and I may be wrong there, and people will listen to this. No, you're right because I, that you're right. But that was my senior year in high school, so it would have been '92 going into '93. I graduated '93, so it was definitely '92. Then my apologies, but uh, yeah, you see me right in the. You know, speaking of me being a fan, you see me right there in the front row, and you know, uh, Nikita Koloff and Vader. Or, are, you know, fighting around our area. We start chanting, use the chair, use the chair. And Vader picks up the chair and <laughs> hits uh, Nikita and then probably gets hit in the head with a beer, <laughs> which they it's put funny. over commentary. <laughs> it's just great. But uh, yeah, 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 dude, I was always a fan. Uh, and my early fandom, you know, I always had an instinct for different things, you know, you know, going to shows and stuff like that. I would watch the shows at, to a certain point where I, I was almost kind of predicting things, stuff like that. Like I kind of had a feeling when, you know, Andre was going to turn heel or stuff like that. Just different things. You start watching from a different perspective because you're watching everything. I mean, I legit watched everything. Saturday morning, you know, grew up, you know, I grew up severe asthmatic. So I wasn't really playing in the other kids reindeer games. So my Saturdays and Sundays, I was just channel surfing, looking for wrestling, looking through the TV guide. You know, you find Polynesian Pacific pro wrestling from Hawaii with, you know, Superfly 2 against Lars Anderson and all this stuff. And, you know, my whole day would be channel surfing, you know, maybe take a break for lunch and then go back and, you know, you find something, you know, living in Atlantic City was perfect too because we had the Philly stations and we had the New York stations. So I could watch, you know, wrestling all-stars or championship wrestling wwf 
on the Philly channels. And then like at night on channel 11, channel nine, watch the same show and uh, hear the different, you know, think voiceovers. <laughs> fans tonight in poughkeepsie uh you know just uh just different different things you know just it was, it was such a good time to be a wrestling fan yes at the comac arena next friday night yeah i remember all that yeah. kind of stuff you'd hear hey, poughkeepsie i used to do that to think and he was like <laughs> uh cut it out <laughs> Don't, you're gonna take my job i remember um where i worked where i sat at a certain point in the publications department at wwe it was right outside the little studio where they used to do bite this, which was their web show on WWE.com. And they would have, there was a period where Fink was a regular on that show. He would just be sort of like, he was like the, I want to say like the, um, like the Artie Lang of bite this for a little while. They had, <laughs> they had him there and, or the Ed McMahon, I guess, if you want to say, but he, they would get him to announce people's names just for fun just because they wanted to hear him say it and he was always such a good sport about it i remember them cornering him in there and being like do jose luis rivera please do jose luis rivera and he would go all right all right jose oh, luis rivera <laughs> that's it yes that's right and I love he, it. he would do whatever they wanted it was great because it was he was just surrounded by people that were in awe of him he was one of my favorite people there when i was there he was just a gentleman nicer than he even ever needed to be just so nice dude uh me and him would bond over music uh he was a huge rock and roll fan and we both loved the black crows and uh it got to the point where you know well, now i used to collect uh b-sides and bootlegs and stuff like that and i gave him like a, a cd that was full of black crows b-sides and never and he you would thought i gave him a million dollars Wow. And then and the next show, we would talk about songs like, how did they not release It Must Be Over? <laughs> we bonded over to Black Crow song, It Must Be Over. I was like, how is that not on an album? You know, so it was cool to see that side of, you know, uh, the Fink. He was, a, he was a rock and roller at heart. Nobody really knew. Yeah, we would commiserate about the Mets. Now, gotcha. I... I I be I'm more of a Yankees fan, but my dad is a huge Mets fan, so I know a lot about the Mets and just how awful they can be. And, and so Fink <laughs> and I would be because I, I, I would be the I'm going to reveal this now. It's probably known, but I was for a time the guy who was distributing copies of the Wrestling Observer around Titan Tower. So I would always come to his office to drop them off, and and he would be like talking about Mets, and and I think he was I think it was Mets and Giants, if I remember right. Those I, were I think he was Jets. Jets. Okay, right. Of course, it would be Mets and Jets, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, he was. I think it was that way because just because it rhymed, maybe Mets and Jets. Hey, it rhymes. Let's do that. Or maybe he just didn't want to have a team that won. It could be that. <laughs> so, oh, the know. perpetual underdog. <laughs> right. Um, but but again, but getting back to Philly, though, I think that yeah. was a big part of it, too. It was like it was, like you said, this town where people just it was hard scrabble and people just went for whoever was the toughest and they liked underdogs. I mean, God, I mean, Rocky. Right. I mean, that's all you need to say. And that appealed to them. That side of wrestling appealed to them. Yeah. Philly was always like kind of in the shadow of New York, you know, uh, you know, when the Phillies won the world series in 1980, you know, Tug McGraw says, uh, you know, take that, you know, 
you know, send this message up to New York and, and tell them to shove it, you know, because we had finally, you know, won the World Series and stuff like that where, you know, you know, the New York team, like the Yankees were always winning the World Series every couple of years and stuff. I mean, uh, did I say Yankees? Yeah, Yankees. Yes, you did. Yeah, well, you know, the, the New York was the darlings and Philly was like uh, <laughs> the cousin, you know, that, you know. <laughs> And I'm going to rub it in and say that I think, and my baseball knowledge is correct, that the Phillies were the last of the kind of original franchise teams to finally win the World Series, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that was pretty. I remember that. And they were always up there. They were kind of big rivals of the Mets because I remember that when I was a kid watching with my dad all the time. And just, you know, there was a lot of that. But um, with the Crockett stuff, was that something that you also followed at the time, or was it were you more just kind of a, a WW? I know you said you were at Veterans Field, but were you more of a, a, a just a WWF kid? I'll, I'm unapologetically a WWF fan, WWF fan, because that's my introduction to the world of wrestling. But when it came to the Crockett's and stuff like that, it was always you know the magazines, uh, you know, I, I, you know. I, he hates when I say it, but the after magazines and, uh, you know, uh, then, you know, growing up at Lake City, we got the New York channels. We got pro wrestling USA where they had like a mix of NWA, AWA, stuff like that. And then, uh, eventually we got, had a Spanish channel that would show wrestling from Florida. So, uh, but when it came specifically to Crockett's, it was always, oh, well, Phil, they, they the thing that sucked in Lanxy didn't get TBS. So I couldn't watch the Saturday night show, but eventually, you know, I, you know, I, I'd be started befriending people who would just record and give me copies, but Philly was prepped and ready for Crockett. You know, it was on our TV every week. And eventually uh, there was one Saturday where I turned off, I was again, looking through the TV guide and uh, res- wrestling in Philly with, you know, WWF would be on channel 29 and channel 48. Oh, wrestling on channel 17 what is it and it was it was crockett worldwide wrestling main event was uh i want to say dick slater uh dusty Rhodes, and a couple other guys it was like an eight-man tag match dick slater came out with this big inflatable oversized cowboy hat or something like that it was it, it was pretty funny but but then, you know, from there i i you know i was you know philly was you know excited to you know have crockett and then they you know, they started running shows in philly I was very jealous in those days because I um, I was kind of young and I started watching like at WrestleMania three. I was like 12 and I wasn't as hip of, you know, to be like, where can I find wrestling? You know, the WWF was really easy to find because it's Saturday morning. I'm already watching cartoons and it's on. And then and then it was Sunday morning, which was also be a time where you tend to have the TV on and it was on easy to find channels you know i think like at one point in new york when i first started it was on channel nine and then it was channel five easy and i didn't really know a lot about uhf i was probably missing out on a lot and by the time i got cable i did because i was jealous of my friends that had cable and they were able to watch all this other stuff i got cable in 92 so late in the game and so much great stuff was already gone by that point and, you know, I finally got to really follow WCW at that point because I couldn't really like New York got worldwide, um, but it would be on like 1230 in the morning on on channel oh. two. And I couldn't stay up that late. You know, when I finally was able to do it, I remember because it, it would be like 
I would I would watch Saturday Night Live because, of course, I had no life. It's a Saturday night. I'm like 17, 18 years old. I'm watching Saturday Night Live for the first hour. Right. And then at 1230, switch over from Channel 4 to Channel 2 and watch WCW Worldwide. And that's all that I had, really. So I missed out on a lot. Like I've caught up with it looking back on it. And I love so much of the old territory wrestling and all the different companies and things. I just will go down these rabbit holes. But at the time, as a kid, it was hard to find anything for, for me anyway, besides WWF. Yeah, I was right there with you, but I was, I, you know, I was, I was fortunate, you know, um, again, we had the Philly channels, uh, we had the, uh, New York channels and then once a month, you know, they would run the Philadelphia spectrum and on a Saturday night and the next day, Sunday at one o'clock, they would show the previous night spectrum show on our local cable, uh, channel called prism. Yes. So if you want, you went to the show the night before you could go and watch yourself the next day on, on uh, prism and watch spectrum wrestling. So it's right. pretty cool. So the Philly people had prism, of course, the New York, New Yorkers had MSG network. And I think even USA network was carrying those MSG cards for a while. Yeah. And um, of course, in Boston, you had Nesson, uh, New England Sports Network, which would carry those garden shows. And and I'm sure there's others, too, that I'm not thinking of. Like, I think the Landover, Maryland cards would be televised on whatever service they USA. had. Maybe it was USA. Maybe it was. And you'd get, like, some of the Maple Leaf Garden shows would be on. Um, they would have their own kind of broadcast. But um, that's another thing that's kind of gone now where you could – I guess you don't need it anymore with the, with the way they do TV now where you could actually watch a house show at home. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, it was great, you know, uh, cause you would, you know, get to see certain people, you know, a guy who is normally getting squashed on, you know, like Saturday morning would have like a competitive match at the spectrum, like big Ron Shaw. Okay. You know, there's yes. this match when, uh, where David San Martino gave up to, you know, big Ron Shaw's, uh, back, you know, bear hug at the spectrum and people are like, what the hell? You know, <laughs> I think David yeah. just had enough and said, I, I quit, you know, and they, they <laughs> rang the bell and that was about it. But, uh, right. yeah. And then, you know, uh, you know, Wyndham and Rotundo lose the belts to be, you know, beefcake and Valentine at the spectrum. And that's when they debuted the classic WWF tag belts that went on for forever. Right. So and the, now spectrum, the spectrum got some good stuff, you know? They did. I think, in fact, and I don't know if you were already a fan by this point, but um, when Hogan was a heel, when he was first there, he got a shot at Backland, not at the Garden, but at the Spectrum, right? That was like their big match was the Philadelphia Spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else happened at the Spectrum, too? Um, uh, I think the Samoans won one of their titles there, if I'm thinking Correctly. I want to say Pedro Morales beat Stan Stasiak for the uh, world title because he had just beaten Bruno. Or they... Stan Stasiak. Who did uh, he? Right. So so um, Stan Stasiak beat Pedro Morales okay. in Philly, but it wasn't at the Spectrum. And I remember this because I made the mistake of mentioning it to Sean Stasiak. <laughs> I was backstage at the Garden, and I think we were not at the, at the Spectrum because they weren't using it anymore, but what was then the the first well, union center. yeah the first union center the wachovia center whatever you want to call it and i said something like hey your dad didn't your dad win the title like right across the street and he said no no, no that wasn't the spectrum and i think it was the philadelphia arena which was the old yeah. place 
the run. That's on 48th and Market Street. And uh, that's right where they also did roller derby. And they would, uh, right next door, they would, you know, back in the day, they would film American Bandstand when it was before they moved out to the West Coast. Yeah. And I think they were doing regular TV there for a while, even. It was one of yeah. their main TV venues before. Uh, when they when they originally left Washington D.C. at the end of the '60s, they started going to Philly. Um, but um, yeah, the Spectrum got a lot of of moments and things and debuts and and you know those garden cards, those MSG cards. It's funny. This is how I know that I'm just old because like <laughs> I will I will take such comfort. There's nothing more. People talk about comfort viewing. Yeah. I could just curl up. And put on like uh, like Peacock on the WWE Network. They just added a bunch of of MSG shows from 1984. They just someone just decided, ah, what the hell? And I could just curl up and watch that and just veg out. Just it, it just takes you to another place. Like I can watch, like you said, I can watch something like you know Rene Goulet versus CV Afi or something, and yeah. it will it will be more riveting to me and i'll watch it more closely than the main event of raw or smackdown now you know i'm the same way uh you put on some and just let it be ambient ambient noise in the, yes. uh, in the room where it's just you know like it's like a like a magic blanket when you're a kid you know just that's the sound of you know dick graham and gorilla monsoon calling spectrum shows on prism yes Monsoon uh, was great. He was Monsoon was great back then, wasn't he? He was I felt like appreciated. Yeah. I feel like later on he got more, and I'm sure they were encouraging it. He got more over the top, like like Vince did and everybody did, where he became just a total cheerleader, you know, for the baby faces. Those early, like when when he's doing those early garden cards and the and and the Philly ones, I don't it made you feel like you're almost watching a boxing card. Like he was just so knowledgeable and very kind of even keel he wasn't screaming and yelling it was just really very very real yeah yeah and uh it, it was great that he did the the philly shows because he was he was from the area and stuff like that so you know he would always do the spectrum shows and he would just yeah you know, like you said it, it felt like you know he always had the ruffle shirt with the carnation and the the bow tie like he just left a wedding or something like that and uh <laughs> he had the glasses and he had a little perm for a little while but uh, you know, Gorilla was the best man, uh, and yes. he was a mountain of a man as well. You know, but uh, you know, just a very uh, e- like very even keeled, very welcoming kind of you know guy. Right, and he would bring his experience to bear when he was calling a match, and he would say yeah. things like, "Boy, you know, I know what that feels like. You know, when you're if you're trying to escape this hold, the best way is to go around the back, and you don't want to grab the leg because if you grab the leg, you know, blah 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 blah." And it really, it made you buy into it so much. It was just so gripping how you, how we do it effortlessly. He's grabbing the tights for leverage. <laughs> that was right. the first time I ever heard. I was like, what's leverage? <laughs> <laughs> or I, I would always try and figure out as a kid why I understand leverage. I understand, you know, weight and all that and, and, and all that. I could never understand if a guy puts his legs on the ropes why all of a sudden does it become physically impossible to kick out of the pin just because he has his legs on the ropes? Yeah. You know? Yeah. But, but, yeah. The, but, but, but it's what I love to call theater of the mind. <laughs> right. But, and they sold you on it. They sold you on what to expect, how to 
you know, watch wrestling really. And what I love is if you're watching Monsoon, if you really watch him, because sometimes they'll have the wide shot and you'll see him at the announce table. Sometimes you'll see him because, you know, he was in charge of a lot of it too. You'll see him like directing people, pointing things, or he'll go off mic and you'll see him like shout out something to somebody that's not supposed to be on mic. Like I remember one time I saw him literally yell to the ring announcer. It wasn't Finkel because Finkel would not make this mistake. He yelled to the ring announcer to turn around because the hard camera was on the other side. (laughs) And he had it, but like, but he, you wouldn't think that would be his job, but, but he was so involved and he was basically like, Hey buddy, turn around. We can't see you, you know? And the guy, the poor guy turned around. He was all nervous and everything. I I love looking for things like that. That, that, That's, and that's one of the things, you know, uh, Mrs. Meany says she likes watching wrestling with me because I'm like, uh, I'm like a living pop-up video where I'm just calling out the things like other people aren't looking at, you know? No, those, uh, the, I would watch those garden cards and sometimes you could look down and you see the tunnel and you see Vince senior standing in the, in an aisle way, you know, behind, you know, Ivan Koloff, you know, who are just, you know, trying to watch it inconspicuously, but the camera just happens to pick up their silhouettes and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah I, I, I love watch. Sometimes I'll watch a match and sometimes I'll watch it for the wrestling and then I'll watch, the, watch it, the, watch the fans. And then, you know, I'll try to see, you know, you know what's going on in the background there too you know the fans there was it always felt like much more of a cross-section of society than what you'd see yeah. now right there's like little old ladies there or there's like there's there you'd see couples where it kind of almost looks looks like they're on a date you know yeah. or there's kids there there's people of all races there, just all mixed up and everybody's just having fun it's it's very it's it's a very different kind of uh vibe and i always love how like you said, when you look backstage or you look up the up the walkway or there'd always be just random people milling around. And I know it's exactly the thing that they hate to have on TV now, especially yeah. with HD, because I don't know, they like it to be very clean and very like almost and it winds up being very sterile. It doesn't yes. feel like it doesn't feel like you're watching a sporting event. It feels like you're watching like the ice capades or something, you know? Yeah, like you're watching a show in a uh, in a country where you're supposed to behave and you know applaud, and it's very surgically scrubbed and you know just yeah. That's why I long for those old shows where yeah, you know, just people just didn't care. Somebody just stands up and flips the bird. You know, right. <laughs> you know? I, I saw a show. I was watching. I don't remember which one it was. Now I think it was it was a Great American Bash pay-per-view i want to say or something it was it was an earlier wcw show like and they had an angle where uh missy hyatt got kidnapped and i think it was like uh, somebody i'm remembering this completely wrong now but somebody came down to ringside and grabbed her and was carrying her to the back it was one of the heels and a fan reached out to try to save her from the front row, and I think it was Dick Murdoch, maybe it was Dick Murdoch, and he hauled off and pummeled this guy <laughs> and and just kept going like nothing happened. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 amazing, like just the things that you could do in wrestling that have no logic to real life. You know, uh, I was just watching a clip with uh was it the black scorpion and he just 
ran out and did a random magic trip where they did the box where the head disappears and stuff like that. Took it. Uh, I think that's assault. Uh, just oh, that's, that's one of my one of my favorite jokes about wrestling is it's like okay, so you have a match that's no DQ, anything goes, and you know, I mean, look, ECW is the right place to talk about this, yeah. but you have a match where anything goes. There's no rules. But yet somehow that also means that the rules of society also don't apply. So like you can hit somebody in the head with a sledgehammer where which would probably be like attempted murder. Yes. And it's fine because, hey, there's no rules. So, you know, you could do whatever you want. Like I always thought the greatest angle ever would be like, you know, like the end of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. If you're having this match, this wild brawl, and somebody does something that's really awful, like 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 that would in, in real life would almost kill you. And the match stops and the police come out and just arrest the guy and 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 take him away. And that's the end of the match. That'd be great. I mean, <laughs> it would add to the realism. I mean, they yeah. kind of an ECW too when uh, the, the the gangsters debuted in ECW and they jumped the public enemy. They had the cops hit the ring and arrest you know the gangsters and take them out the front door. That's you know, right. You, you would think that would happen more often, you know, they, they'd add some, some realism. It would. And even, well, talk about that. I mean, they would use real cops. I don't know if they, did they do it at the spectrum? Cause in the garden, there would be NYPD. Yeah. And I don't know if maybe if they had smartened them up or not, I mean, I'm hoping I don't want them to pull a gun on anybody, but right. wh- I always wonder like, why would the NYPD play along with this? It was amazing to me. Yeah, uh, well, the ECW, we we use a lot of police officers that were just moonlighting off duty. Yeah, and then uh, I think they start getting in trouble for wearing their uniform to the the thing, so they start had to wear like you know business casual or what I don't know, just uh, something different. But yeah, we had legit you know Philly, Philly PD. It wasn't just a bunch of uh, indie workers uh, that uh, Arnold Scarlin the uh, you know had to pay off at the end of the night, you know, just to uh, play police officer. It does. It does add to the realism, like you're saying, because um, a lot of times when I'll if I'm watching wrestling now and there is something that's supposed to be not part of the match, like somebody getting attacked or a run in or whatever. And when everybody is just kind of standing there and watching and no one's doing anything, the announcers or and not that the announcers are going to break it up, but it's just this feeling of, well, it's just part of the show. Like you don't see people running out to stop it. You don't see other wrestlers coming out. You don't see an authority figure. I always remember, you know, Tony Gurria, Rene Goulet, they were hitting that ring, man. Whenever things got hot, they were trying to chief Jay Strongbow was out there in a shirt and tie breaking it up. Now it's just like, eh, we're just going to let this guy do this. And as a fan, I'm watching it going, well, I know why they're letting him do this because this is a scripted segment. But if, yeah. if you if you want to make it look like it's not a scripted segment, maybe try to break it up. Yeah, yeah. I, I, there, there was something the other night where, on, recently where, you know, they sent a million guys to break up one fight and then like something else happened that like it was like somebody basically emerged and nobody came out. I was like, what? The locker room doesn't like this guy? And nobody's going to say, man. They do it with they tend to do it with like Lesnar, I noticed, because I think what they they're trying to put over the unstoppability of somebody. That's when they'll send out 100 guys and nobody could break it up. But if it's just your typical brawl, they'll just kind of let it go. But but I want to get to because I I know you're a busy man. I don't want to talk your ear off forever. So one thing I definitely want to get to before I run out of time here is 
I, I talked a little bit about those conventions and things yeah. that you'd go to. I'd like to hear apologies if you've talked about it before, but the stories behind that, like, cause I've seen pictures of you with the macho man. I've seen pictures yeah. of you with the heart foundation. What were those experiences like as a young fan? Uh, pure magic. Um, you know, uh, I'd gone to shows, but I never really got to meet anybody. And, uh, at the time when WrestleMania, uh, four and five came to Atlantic city, my grandfather, um, was a security guard at Trump Plaza. And, you know, all, all <laughs> he would talk about me to everybody, you know, he's like, you know, and talk about how much I loved wrestling and all that stuff. Well, they were having this high roller meet and greet, you know, where, you know, you know, you know, if you're a high roller, you, know, you come in and your kids get to meet everybody. And my, my, my grandfather's boss came to him. and was like, Hey, this, we're having this thing. Does Brian want to come? And, you know, I lived maybe three blocks from, uh, Trump Plaza. And it was like, I was like Ralphie waiting to meet Santa in a Christmas story, but you know, the line wasn't as long, but, uh, it was kind of cool. My, my grandfather walked me up and his, uh, boss came in and escorted me in and, you know, my grandfather just kind of dumped me off for today. And I just got to walk around and, you know, Santa's village, but it was pro wrestling village. You know, I, at one table, there's, you know, Hacksaw Jim Duggan and you know Tito Santana and Rick Martel and there's Bobby Heenan over there hanging out. There's Gorilla Monsoon and, and uh, just you're in awe, you know, and uh, it, it, the, the cool thing is, it's like this is like heavy kayfabe era. And, uh, you know, I guess, you know, Vince didn't want anybody to talk about anything else. I'll go up to Bobby Heenan and start asking about AWA. <laughs> And you, you could see all the like, I was like asking him something I wasn't supposed to. He goes, and he holds up his pen. He goes, I'm here to sign autographs, not answer questions and <laughs> stuff like that. And, you know, uh, it just, but like, you know, they, they had like the professional photo ops and the, the ones, you know, like you were talking about with, you know, Savage and the Heart Foundation, they would have like, it's like a prom set up, you know, with the backdrop and a professional <laughs> photographer and you just wait in line and you, you go over and get your photo. And it was it is unbelievable. Like, yeah, yeah. As a, you always go, oh, if I met somebody, what, what, what would I say? And I, I literally just, hi, how you, how you doing? Uh, but uh, you know, you pose for the photos, and then like they give you a ticket, and then at the night, and the convention, or you know, they would have something again later that night, like like a banquet type thing, and you go and pick up your photo, and they give you a book bag full of merch and stuff like that. And, it was, it was awesome, you know, uh, and I went, you know, for four and five. So you see the evolution of my jean jacket, uh, <laughs> WrestleMania four was more subdued. And then, you know, I started listening to rock and roll and heavy metal. And then, uh, the next year I started having like Van Halen and Metallica patches. And, uh, I eventually got the back airbrushed with the Van Halen logo, which adds to another story of when I met Bill after. You know, as, as a kid in a, uh, the mall in Atlantic city and wound up being his, uh, photo assistant for the day on a, on a boxing shoot of all things. But, wow. but those, those, those conventions were fantastic. And if you're a VHS collector, you go out there and get the, uh, WrestleMania four double VHS that opens up and with Hogan. And I think it's just Hogan, this, or, uh, if, 
they show the uh, you know footage from the fan convention, and you see me on camera just standing next to Ricky Steamboat waiting to get an autograph. And like this is like me early, just being aware of there's a camera there, and you see me kind of lean into the shot, like, oh, you know, <laughs> you see me kind of <laughs> casually not look into the camera, but just you know. Hey, uh, cameraman, get my side profile here, you know, because I I felt the light on me. So maybe that was early training for big end into pro wrestling too. But you know, it it, it, was, it was amazing. Um, and then from there, I you know I did WrestleMania four, five, and then you know John and Rezzy start running his wrestling conventions. I went to a couple of those, and uh, Dennis Corluzzo, uh, legendary you know Northeast promoter, and you know kept the NWA. He kept the NWA name alive in the nineties and stuff like that. He had a couple of NWA conventions where I got to, uh, you know, meet and be around people. I'd eventually get to work with like Sabu and, you know, Sonny and, um, you know, road warrior animal and stuff like that. And that was basically my last convention until, you know, I, I went off to uh train. And when you were for those, even those first two, you mentioned the WrestleMania ones, did yeah. you, did you have any inkling at that time that you might want to do that later on in life? I always wanted to do something with wrestling and my family was like, Oh, that's cute. <laughs> because, you know, I grew up severe asthmatic and every spring and every fall when the, the weather would change, you know, I would get sick and, you know, be in the hospital and I couldn't, you know, couldn't try out for the football team. I was allergic to the grass field, you know, cause of my allergies and stuff like that, which would trigger my asthma. But eventually, you know, uh, uh, we, we found a, a doctor, a lung specialist in Margate, New Jersey, like two towns over from Lang City, and they got me on the right medication, right dosages, and eventually my lungs got better to where when I went off the train with Al, you know, uh, in Ohio, like the first, you know, couple days I was dying, but like, as you know, keep going, keep going, you know, he would notice, hey, man, your, your cardio is getting better. But yeah, as a kid, it's something I always wanted to do. Uh, Mrs. Meany, you know, is going through my collections and found like my early attempts at autographs. (laughs) I I wanted to be, you know, I was a big fan of Dr. Death Steve Williams. So there's like a couple notepads with, you know, my Dr. Death signature and all that stuff. You know, it's something I've always, always wanted to do. I believe I'm a strong believer. If you can visualize it, sort of kind of feel it, just, you know, imagining it. You so when you attain it, when you were meeting these, I'm sorry, I totally stepped on your mantra there. I don't know oh, what's no, wrong no. with me, but oh, when good. you, when, when you would meet some of these guys back then, did you ever kind of pick their brains about things like that? Like, Hey, you know, I, I want to be, I might want I, you know, I want to be a wrestler one day. Did, did you ever say something like that to like a Randy Savage or something? Uh, not really. Uh, the first time I actually brought up wanting to be a wrestler to a wrestler was Tom Brandy. Uh, there was a, you know, convention in the Philly area. I mean, I was probably like 16, 17 and, uh, it's like, yeah, I want to get into pro wrestling. He's like, how old are you? I was like, you know, 16. It's like, oh, you're good. And he would give me, you know, advice. And eventually, you know, uh, when I started getting into newsletters, I found out that, you know, monster factory would be holding a tryout and I went and tried out the monster factory. It's weird how you could just remember things because of wrestling it was the day after wrestle, wrestle the wrestlemania that was in the indiana eight eight the I next day too. i the next day i drove to from lancy to paulsboro new jersey and 
tried out for the monster factory, which my, uh, my, my tryout was run by headbanger thrasher, uh, Glenn Ruth and, uh, Larry Sharp and Dennis Corluzzo was there. And there's out of like maybe 12 guys me and like three other dudes got called into the office to talk about, you know, potentially training there. But, uh, you know, it, I don't know. And, and in a way I, I kind of, I'm kind of not, not nothing against the monster factor, but I'm kind of glad I went the way I did. I'm glad I moved to Ohio to train because I think if I start showing up at home with all the bumps and bruises, I was getting from wrestling training. My, my family would have tried to talk me out of it. You know? Right. Yeah. Mostly my grandmother. Oh my God. You know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, she, she, she was my protector. Of course. It's, it's funny to me because you've been talking about your grandparents and I had a, s- a similar thing with my grandfather where my grandfather was a boxing coach actually. And he, awesome. so he crossed paths with a lot of wrestlers over the years, even though in those days, in those days, the boxing people tended to look down on the wrestling people more than today, but, but he did cross paths with a lot of people with a lot of cool stories. But um, I just wanted to say for people who listen to this now, they're going to be amazed and hopefully impressed that we did not spend the majority of the time talking about ECW. People are going to be like, how the heck you got the blue meanie on your show and you didn't talk about ECW. That's because, well, first of all, we did a little bit, but second of all, that's because that's what everybody wants to talk to you about. And I'm trying to do something different. So I can't thank you enough for agreeing to do this. Oh, this is great, man. Uh, You know, normally I've been turned down a lot of stuff, but, uh, when you, you asked me to do this, I, I, I had to do it. You know, me and you have been friends for forever, you know, and, uh, I'm happy you're doing this. You know, you, you've been around, you've seen things, you've done things and uh, you have a good perspective on the business. So I'm, I'm glad you, I'm flattered you asked me to, uh, be on this. Thank you. And I'm, and I'm flattered you agreed to really. And I know we've been trying to catch up for years and years <laughs> every time i pop up in philly my daughter is at drexel university so there's really no excuse next time and i say the same thing actually bill after says the same thing to me he's like please come over to my house and of course bill's amazing because i just went a couple of months ago to visit my daughter and i go bill i'm coming to philly i want to come see you blah blah blah. he goes ah i'm gonna be out of town next time so <laughs> you know <laughs> it's almost like he was setting me up yeah so don't set me up that way we'll have to catch up hopefully when if i get up there soon i would love that absolutely my friend all right thank you so much blue meanie this has been a true pleasure thank you and uh i can't wait to uh, check out the rest of your shows well there you have it folks the blue meanie brian heffron that was a lot of fun and i hope you had fun listening to it and thanks once again to uh the blue meanie for coming on here on shut up and wrestle and talking to me about um, his memories and his experiences Um, that really was a blast i hope you enjoyed it Um, so and i also hope that you're going to keep listening because we have some great guests lined up in the weeks to come i can tell you that our next guest on shut up and wrestle my next guest is going to be somebody that i know very very well because he's been a colleague a dear friend and a mentor of mine now um, for um, over 20 years, going back to the WWE magazine days and in a lot of other things. And that would be Keith Elliott Greenberg, a legendary scribe and an icon of wrestling magazine writing, if ever there was one. So Keith Elliott Greenberg is coming up next week. I hope you listen to that. Um, that conversation, that w- we've done it, and I can tell you now that I'm very proud of it. And it really was a great 
trip down memory lane. So I'll be looking for that next time. I've also got other ones lined up. We've got Supermouth Dave Drayson, a.k.a. Dave Berzinski coming up. Um, the Dean of Detroit Wrestling, he's a, a guest that I have coming up, as well as the great Jeff Walton, a luminary of California wrestling, especially Southern California wrestling, and the one-time uh, right-hand man of Mike LaBelle, the promoter in Southern California. So that'll be a good one, too, and lots of other stuff coming up. Um, as always, if you want to find me on social media, you can get me on Twitter or Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. Also on Facebook at Pro Wrestling FAQ. That's where I put up a lot of my wrestling updates. You'll also find links in these places to my author website. And if you're interested in getting Pro Wrestling Illustrated, that's getpwi.com. Insidetheropesmagazine.com is where you can get Inside the Ropes. And also reminding you that I am the co-host with Al Castle of the PWI podcast, which you can also find wherever you get your podcasts. And as for this podcast, Shut Up and Wrestle, if uh, I'm not sure where you're finding it and where you're checking it out, but if you want to uh, look for it and subscribe to it, uh, the most direct place is suawpod.com. And uh, of course, you could also get it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, and wherever you find your podcasts. So I hope you can continue to listen. And once again, this has been Brian Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and hoping that as you slide down the banister of life, all the splinters are pointed in the right direction. So long, wrestling fans. <laughs> <laughs>